You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello and welcome to Betty in the Sky with a Suitcase. This is our second episode, and it may as well be called Betty with Only a Suitcase. I know many of you, as myself, have been watching the news a lot in the last uh, about week and a half after Hurricane Katrina and wondering what it would be like if it happened to you. And actually, I know what it'd be like if it happened to me. It's not the exact same circumstance, but I was displaced. I did lose everything. I was homeless about 11 years ago in the... 1994 Northridge earthquake in Los Angeles. Um, I wasn't sure whether or not to do this episode right now. I know a lot of people are probably tired of the exhaustion of even just listening to the stories um, on television. But what I decided to do was go ahead and do this episode, and I will tell my story, which is slightly lengthy, but I will interject with some funny stories in between. So basically, we'll hear my whole earthquake story. And in between, we'll have some funny airline stories. So I was in Los Angeles, and I'm a flight attendant, don't have a ton of money. Los Angeles is a very expensive city. And for years, I was out here looking for an affordable apartment that I could have for myself. And in Santa Monica, they have rent control. And I had tried for years and years to get a rent control apartment. And I'm actually not a religious person, but there's a uh, a saying that God hates smug, and in my case, it might have been true with this little bit of a story, because I, on my birthday, 1993, got a call from a landlord in Santa Monica saying I had gotten a rent control apartment, and I just literally felt like I had won the lottery because it was going to be $499 a month in Los Angeles. That's like a third of the rents. And it was in the best area of Santa Monica, which is not far from the beach. Great town. Um, unbelievably great apartment. It was old 1920s building, it had archways and all kinds of like French glass doors. I mean, it was just a lovely apartment. I could walk to a lot of things. Um, And so I told every single person I ran into for the next few weeks, (laughs) I won the lottery. I got a rent control apartment. I won the lottery. I won the lottery. I got the best apartment ever. It's only $499. Well, I move in. And two weeks after I move in, in the middle of the night, I wake up. Sirens blaring. It's pitch dark. People don't realize there's so many streetlights and things, but in an earthquake, everything's dark and everybody's screaming. Um, 
you know, I'm totally disoriented. I'm naked and that's how I sleep. And all of a sudden I look around and everything is just upside down. My building had fallen upon itself in the earthquake. I didn't realize it wasn't bolted to the foundation. So it had fell five feet. I had just spent a lot of money putting burglar bars on my windows uh, because I was on the ground floor and uh, all the other apartments had it. And so um, I basically trapped myself in the building because when a building falls on top of itself, you can't open the door. And then there's a gas leak. People are screaming, the building's going to blow. The building's going to blow. Get out, get out. And there's a fire release on burglar bars, but they don't work when a building has smushed down, fallen down on top of itself. So I was trapped. And that's when I actually got really afraid. I mean, um, burning, you know, gas leak, that's, that's just about most people's biggest fear, I would think, you know, trapped and burning. So um, a small guy from across the street had seen our building that it was fallen down and he had come over. All of the apartments were trapped. Nobody could open the doors. And he knocked on my door and said, stand back, I'll kick your door in. And I had just been through the riots a few years ago before that when, um, just like this current situation, you weren't sure if you were going to trust people. People had uh, resorted to animalistic behavior. Uh, it was very scary. So unfortunately, I still was having that non-trusting feeling because I was naked and it's a person I didn't know saying he was going to kick my door and I didn't know what he was going to do. And my natural impulse was to say no, which was so stupid. But I was in the apartment and it was, like I said before, it had a lot of character. So it had that old type of people it was like a little wrought iron hook. You open it up, it was like a little door. And so I was looking out, I had my flashlight and I could see him say, stand back I'll kick your door into somebody else, another neighbor. And he didn't rape or pillage or anything. So I yelled, come back, come back. So <laughs> luckily he was nice enough to come back and he kicked my door in. Now we're going to come back to for the story a little bit later. Right now we're going to hear about some other major events. Um, I guess you could call them disasters, but more like disaster light. Okay, flight on a 737, and a uh, passenger tried to decided he wanted to hijack the airplane. And the flight attendant had been flying about four years, the coordinator. The others were all brand-new reserves, and they were just quaking in their little high-heeled little pumps, their Conco's pumps. And so this man comes up, and he says he's hijacking the airplane. And she said, well... The coordinator was Norwegian, and she said, Well, I don't think so. <laughs> You're not going to take this airplane. He said, Yes, I'm hijacking this airplane to Cuba. And she goes, Well, I don't think so. This airplane can't make it. You better do your research again next time. You decide you want to hijack an airplane because this isn't going to make it. <laughs> and he said, This isn't a joke. And she said, Well, do you think I'm joking? I certainly am not. You better do your research next time. This airplane won't make it. Well, of course, the airplane would have made it, but he didn't know that. Is that the end of that? She managed to con him, and he kept saying, "I'm lady, I'm I'm serious. And she sat there and just ate, and she was eating. She said, I'm really hungry. I haven't eaten. I'm really hungry, and I've got to eat. And he said, lady, I am serious. And she said, well, I don't think you are serious. If you're serious, you would have done your research. This airplane is not fuel-equipped to, to take the trip. I think you better I think you better hijack another airplane some other time. This is not going to make it. You better do your research. That's amazing. <laughs> and 
we ended up at Pensacola at Whiting Field training in T-34 Charlies. Tandem seating arrangement. Student normally sits up front. Instructor sits in the rear. And uh, normally we start off when in primary, a lot, many, many students have never even flown an airplane before. And the Navy starts training in that fashion. Say, this is the airplane, these are wings, and that's a propeller. Something like 14 familiarization flights. And Steve is on his, luckily, number 10 familiarization flight. Uh, And where they're out at about, uh, you know, 3,000 feet doing some maneuvers, uh, such as steep turns. Steve was was not flying. The instructor was flying from the back, and the, which was Dean Lucas. And he had his head down t- explaining to Steve something. And just then, an explosion, explosive force hit him square in the face. And he had no idea what was going on. And he thought the airplane was going down. He was knocked briefly unconscious. And he... Uh, he had no idea what was going on, and he unstrapped. He let you know the canopy go, and he climbed out of the airplane and jumped out, bailed out. The instructor. The instructor did. So the instructor's gone. So the instructor's gone, and he's hanging in his chute, and he, you know, makes it to the ground and crumples in a ball and ends up on the ground. Now let's go back to the airplane. Now Steve, unconscious in the front seat. He's unconscious. He's unconscious. He wakes up, calls to his instructor in the back because last he saw, or last he knew, his instructor was flying the airplane. So he kept, he made several transmissions on the ICS, uh, the interphone system, pilot to pilot, and uh, sir, do you have the airplane? Nothing. The plane started to roll off on one wingtip, and they were nose low, started picking up speed. He asked again, sir, do you have the airplane? And so he looked back, saw that the canopy was open. The instructor's static line, which is the line that's attached to the airplane and to the other end of the parachute, pulls the parachute out as you jump out was flapping in the breeze on the canopy rail. So he's alone. So he realized at that point that, yes, he was alone. And Steve, you know, is one of those that take charge individual, brought the airplane to an outlying field in picture-perfect procedure, did a precautionary approach into uh, one of the outlying fields, and it, with a bloody face, hardly could see, landed the airplane okay. And in subsequent uh, uh, investigation, when, the, when they got to the airplane and helped Steve get out, they found a large turkey buzzard in the back seat for the instructor. The turkey buzzard had come through straight into the windscreen, glanced off Steve broke his visor, knocked him out, and hit the instructor square in the face. 
hit Dean Lucas square in the face, knocked him out, and uh, and so they you know removed the turkey buzzer, gave him a proper burial, <laughs> sent a helicopter for Dean Lucas and took uh, Steve to the hospital, where I visited him later on, and he had a his face was swollen bigger than a grapefruit on the left side or right. I can't remember which side. Because apparently a piece of the turkey buzzard claw or guts got, you know, cut him open and and he on his face and got contaminated, you know, and he got an infection and it just, his face just ballooned out. It was unbelievable. Well, anyway, Steve got an air medal and his stru- an instructor got a uh, light or the rest of his career was ribbed for leaving his student and he was there by... And forever known as Leavem Lucas. <laughs> so, getting back to my earthquake story, after the little guy kicked in my door, he was only able, he was small, that's why I keep saying little, because he wasn't very strong. So, he was only able, because it was an old fashioned door, it had panels basically, he was only able to kick out the middle panel. So, I was able to climb out that hole. So, it was more like a three foot by three foot hole anyway so he says are there's there anyone else in the building should we go get anybody else and i said oh yes there's another flight attendant upstairs so we go upstairs and we say stand back we're you're, we're gonna kick the door in and see, just like i said she says no <laughs> i don't know maybe it's just your natural reaction uh, maybe it's just like the natural reaction of the people not to leave in the hurricane. I don't know, but uh, her reasoning for not wanting us to kick the door in is for the first time ever, she had put olive oil in her hair the night before and a green mask on is like a beauty treatment and there was no running water, no electricity. So, <laughs> you know, she was looking a mess. So that's why she didn't want us to kick the door in. But we did anyway. And so then the two of us were outside. It was still dark out and it was like, well, what are we going to do now? So we sat in a car because it was kind of cold out because we could use that um, heater and waited for the sun to come up. And then uh, we started to load up our cars. We weren't sure where we were going to take the stuff, but we thought, well, let's get a car load of stuff out of the building because we knew the building was trash. It was basically like leaving everything out on the sidewalk because all the doors were now kicked in. The front of the building and the back of the building were gone. So we start... Uh, loading up a car. It's very, very strange. And I hope you'll never have to decide this, but it's very difficult when you're in your apartment or your house to decide what to take. What, what is it that's most important to you? Well, I knew I'd have to work in a couple days. So I took my uniform and my work suitcase, (laughs) a couple other things, uh, mementos, um, pictures, things like that, gifts, loaded up my car and while we were loading up our car it was it was really interesting how people react in a in a disaster people you think might react really well don't and other people you think would be a basket case aren't there was one kind of hollywood type girl in the building and she's kind of slightly ditzy and she as we're like packing everybody's moving stuff out of the building she's saying so we we can't stay here tonight? <laughs> it was like, um, no. Then there was another girl who was politely losing it. She was carrying things out, basically emptying out her whole apartment because her door was able to, they kicked for some reason her door all the way in so she could get furniture out. She was emptying out her apartment 
down onto the sidewalk. I don't know what, it's like, like setting it up out there. I don't know what she thought she was going to do with it. But she was very, very polite. She's like, excuse me, pardon me, excuse me, pardon me. And she smashes out the front window of the building because she thought it'd be easier to get it out than we had a hard time because the porch was gone. So she, excuse me, pardon me, smash, smashes out the window. Continue to take all of her stuff out onto the sidewalk. So as I was saying before, once you get your carload full of stuff, it's kind of like, well, now where are you taking it? Uh, that was the next big question. We're looking forward to it. I'm going to be with all my buddies, and we're planning to go to the beach, go out to dinner, go to the discos, and we're going to put all of that into 24 hours. So I'm so looking forward to it. And then I get this note from another flight attendant begging me, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, trade trips. I've got to have this time off, please. And I write her back, oh, I'm really sorry, but um, I'm going to be with my friends. She doesn't give up. Please, please, please trade with me. I, nobody else will trade with me. I don't know what I'm going to do. So then I felt like such a jerk. I finally very regretfully, begrudgingly said, all right, I'll trade the trip with you. It was nice of me, I thought. You know, I was a real attaboy. So I give her the trip. I'm sitting at home the day of my trip. I'm watching television with my husband, and suddenly there's this big news bulletin. They stop in the middle of it. One of those guys comes on, and special bullet has been hijacked to Cuba. And I turn and look at my husband. That's my flight. I'm supposed to be on that flight. Well, my husband's going, oh, thank God, you're safe at home. And I'm looking at him like, are you nuts? I missed the chance to be hijacked. This would have been... You know, my career kudo. My God, I missed it. So I'm a little disappointed on that. What happens next? My friends all come back. They tell me about it. All the excitement of all of the Cuban soldiers all around the airplane. And then the most excitement was Fidel Castro comes on the airplane after it's all over. Looks around, shakes hands with everybody, gives them an 8 by 10 glossy of himself. Signed, Fidel. I missed it. That other bitch, she's got my photo. And does she ever give it back? No, I miss it. Now I've been flying for 29 years. Have I ever been kidnapped since then, hijacked? No, nothing. She stole it from me. But I want you to tell me what it was like for them when they were hijacked. What happened to them? Well, you know, that was the other funny part about that, is that the hijacker is traveling with his wife, and baby. Well, that's be unusual, I Very unusual. I guess he was just sympathetic to the Cubans and all of that. So it was actually a very light flight because it was a new route and so there weren't a lot of passengers. And it's a large aircraft that has the galley down below. One of the flight attendants, Fred, thought about it because he was working in the galley. They're sitting on the airplane, sitting on the ground in Cuba. Fred opens the catering door, which is a really large door, but it's still probably a good 14, 16 foot drop down to the ground. He has the flight attendants get all of the seatbelt extensions together and sends them down to the galley for him. 
He clips them all together, clips it on to the side of the aircraft. Now, if you kind of... He is. He was so inventive about it, creative. And he uh, puts them, clips it onto the side of the aircraft, and now it's only maybe about a four-foot drop down to the ground. Easy to do. Climb. You can kind of let yourself down on it like a bro, and, uh, and then just drop the rest of the four feet. So one by one, <laughs> they bring the passengers down while, one, while the flight attendants are talking to the hijacker and his family. They take the passengers down two at a time because there are two lifts, as we call them, or elevators. Sends them down in the elevators, and they then jump down, you know, climb down and jump down and run off. And they... And they, and they he does not notice this going on because the flight attendants keep them busy. Well, now they're down to only two flight attendants who are talking to the hijacker, and one of them on the, whole on the entire airplane, there is no one left but the two flight attendants. And one of them says, well, you know what? I'm going to go up and get something to drink. So that flight attendant leaves. And then the other flight attendant says, to see what's taking her so long. Can I bring you something back to drink? And the hijacker says, oh yeah, we'll have some <laughs> drinks. She goes up, go down, goes downstairs. The hijacker and his family are sitting there. They're the only people on this aircraft. And it probably takes him a good 20 minutes to realize, why isn't she coming back? And he stands up and he looks around there's no passengers on there and he says he gets up and he walks all around the aircraft this is how he describes it to the FAA later um, is that he walks all around this really large jumbo jet he's looking everywhere there are no pilots there are no flight attendants there are no passengers and he sheepishly realizes he and his wife and baby are alone on this airplane and so he ended up giving himself up because what else was there? And it was all because Fred thought of opening this door and using the seatbelt extensions and whisking everybody off. And I wonder if the hijacker even knew there was a lower galley. Not even you know what? I don't know if he did or not. Um, yeah. So it was very smart. But hey. I am still missing that 8x10 glossy signed by Fidel. You know, that could, that could be worth some money on eBay. Not to mention in my little souvenirs of my career. So I'm not trading trips anymore like that. Yeah. I remember hearing about this hijack when, hijacking when I first started flying. And there were a couple parts of the story that she didn't mention that I thought were particularly humorous. When the male flight attendant in the lower galley was going to open that door, the catering door, when we were in training years and years ago, they would tell us if we were ever in a hijacking to be extremely careful about exiting the aircraft because you could be entering a situation that could be more dangerous than what you're in. So... In case there are hostile forces outside, <laughs> he opened that galley door and he took one of our white linens, like a linen tablecloth for first class, and sort of swung it out <laughs> to see if anybody would shoot at it <laughs> before he actually was going to put any of his own limbs outside. I thought that was pretty funny. And then the other quick note to that story is that Fidel Castro was so um, generous 
you know, giving them signed photos and everything. But uh, he wasn't going to give them the gas for free to leave because, of course, they weren't supposed to schedule to land in in Cuba. So the captain of the aircraft gave him his credit card to buy the fuel to get out of Cuba. <laughs> At least that's what I've heard. So now I have a whole car load full of belongings. And where do you take them? I went and stood in line at a payphone. The payphones were working. I didn't have a cell phone at the time. And I called my old boyfriend. Uh, I might have to tell that story another time. It's actually quite interesting. He was an actor, basically sort of a celebrity I had met and recognized on the plane. And we had been dating for, I think it might have been three years at that point. And we were broken up. And um, I didn't know many other people in Los Angeles. I'd spent most of my time with him. So... Another really interesting note to this disaster story is that I knew it was going to happen. I had been in therapy at the time to get over the old boyfriend, and um, I had told my therapist on the Thursday before the earthquake, it happened on Sunday night, Monday morning, I had said to her, you know, I think I'm going to open lines of communications with my old boyfriend. And she said, well, why would you do that? That's not anything like you've been talking about. And I said, well... You know, I don't know many other people in Los Angeles. What happens if there's a big disaster? And she said, well, what kind of disaster? And I said, well, what if there's a big earthquake and I have nowhere to go? And she said, oh, you'll make friends. And I said, no, what What if it happens now? So strange. It happened three days later. And then she said, um, well, how much help do you think your old boyfriend would be in an emergency? And it turns out he was a lot of help. He was great. We came over, I went over there, unloaded the stuff. We came back twice and loaded the car up. Um, But we were in the building when there was a huge aftershock. And um, the building was like a bomb had got off in there. And we were both like, you know, it's not worth getting hurt over these belongings. And eventually, um, all my things were looted. Um, So I can understand how the people feel down there with the looting. Uh, It was picked clean like I had moved in, just moved in. But um, I guess the moral of my story is I did have a large financial loss, but of course that's the smallest of any loss. I, I really feel for them with the the family and the there's so much more they're dealing with. Mine was mainly a financial loss. The only other thing is that I can really empathize with them about is that most people, and I didn't realize how much you value home, regardless of whether it's a house or an apartment or regardless of where you live, it's home. And after something traumatic happens, you can go there and basically just, you know, you can just exhale. And the hardest part for me during the whole displacement was not being able to go home. Um, so I, I just really feel for all those people down there. And I also want to say from this perspective, um, a little over a decade later, that people were so nice to me after it. I, my, the company I worked for was so nice. Um, other flight attendants, people I knew, the generosity of people is just astounding. And hopefully that's the experience that people, the Katrina victims will have also. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's about it for this episode. Next week, we'll get back to some more adventure travel. If you like the airline stories, I do some stories sometimes for another podcast called Fly With Me. You can reach that podcast at www.flywithjoe.com. And just as a brief note, I'd like to ask that you look around, take a deep breath, exhale, and just be appreciative for everything you have. Hope you'll join me next week for another episode of Betty in the Sky with a Suitcase.